I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, life lessons from an Olympic track star, the coach of the country's worst hockey team, and a middle-aged journalist turned mediocre surfer, swimmer, and juggler. Do you like sports? I do. I wasn't very sporty in high school, but I've gotten more and more interested in midlife, which is probably why I'm into the middle-aged stuff, cycling. I've somehow become one of those guys with a little bit of a belly in a ballerina suit. I'm not quite sure how that happened. And I'm currently mildly obsessed with trying to rebuild my tennis game. And when I'm not skidding across the tennis court, one of my favorite things to do, I don't think I'm alone here, is to recline on the couch while other people on television perform extraordinary athletic exertions. There's nothing like sipping a cup of tea while watching someone run a four minute mile. More inspiring still is learning the personal stories behind great athletic achievements. Last week, I listened to three book bites about the power, privilege, and occasional pain of participating in sports whether at the highest or lowest level. A bit of background here. Every season, we ask the authors of the most groundbreaking new books to distill those books down to five big ideas and then read them aloud. We call them Book Bites, the best new books in 12 minutes of audio. Today, I thought I'd share three that have reinvigorated my dedication to my physical and mental fitness. Up first, Olympic runner Alexi Pappas tells us what her athletic pursuits taught her about self-reliance, mental health, embracing pain, and achieving her dreams. Next, John U. Bacon shares the surprising lessons he learned coaching the country's worst high school hockey team. And finally, journalist Tom Vanderbilt makes a rousing case for being an amateur athlete at any age. I love these book bites, and I learned a lot from them. I hope you do too. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Where does she find the time? It's a question that anyone who's read Alexi Papa's incredible and incredibly lengthy resume is bound to ask. Alexi is a runner, writer, actor, director, producer, and social media star. She was an NCAA All-American at Dartmouth. She represented Greece in the 2016 Olympics and set a national record in the 10K. She wrote and starred in the acclaimed films Track Town and Olympic Dreams. And this year, she published a remarkable memoir called Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas. Alexi recently took some time out of her busy schedule to chat about that book with our producer, Caleb Bissinger. Hi, Alexi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be back talking to you. Well, we're so glad to have you here. So I have to tell you, I have a little sister who's 17 and who is a passionate track athlete who's going to be running in college next year. Really? She is. And I texted her her. and I said, guess who I'm talking to on Friday? And she said, who? And I said, Alexi Pappas. And she wrote back all caps. This is a direct quote, all caps. Bro, what? 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 
Are you kidding? She is so effing cool. Oh, my God. I can't process. Oh, that's like that means more to me than you and I having this conversation. (laughs) Uh, No offense, because I just care so deeply about that. I just do. I just do. So that really makes my day. Well, then I told my girlfriend, who's a former collegiate athlete, that I was going to be talking to you. And she said, can I be in the same room while you have the conversation just so sort of by osmosis I can say that I've met Alexi? Well, you live in L.A. You live in L.A. We're going to go on a run together. Oh, you shouldn't. Don't make promises you can't keep. She'll she'll uh, she'll take you up on that. I can keep it. It leads me to a real question, which is that you have this group of incredibly passionate fans that you call Bravies. And one of the things that's sort of remarkable to me is that here's a a 17-year-old high school runner. Here's a 30-year-old former collegiate runner. They're both really inspired by you. They're both really drawn to you. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that, why you think it is that your work and your presence on social media and this book, Bravey, speaks to this range of of athletes, male and, but particularly female, I think. First of all, it's like a real privilege. And it's also, I see it as like a real responsibility too, when you know people might be paying attention and possibly imitating what you say or what you do. And I think that comes from an awareness from my own experience being young and growing up, you know, with my dad and my brother and and without my mom and just really imitating other older women that I looked up to. And so I think it comes down to a fascination with words and wanting to and hopefully successfully communicating in a way that gives people permission to see something objective in a more subjective way and to shift their perspective or at the very least, just like the gift of confidence, which I think is something that we can uniquely give to each other easier, sure. more, more likely than we can grow it ourselves, which is also important. You mentioned just now growing up without your mom, and that's obviously sort of at the emotional heart of this book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience and, and how it's reflected in, in this, this wonderful book. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're all born in whatever circumstance we're born. And my situation was that when I was young, my mom uh, was mentally injured. She she was manic bipolar and had, you know, a strong addiction to a number of things, including her pain medications for her back. And she took her own life when I was four, almost five years old. And I don't have a lot of memories of her. And the ones that I do have are mostly really, really painful and really bad, including you know, one where I saved her life really as a four-year-old. And I think what that meant for me was a few things. Like one, I knew that I would need to like grow up and figure some things out for myself because I knew even when I knew her, even when she was alive, that she wasn't able to be there for me. And then I also think I had the chance to make a choice about the world, which is that when something like that is taken from you or disappears, you can see the world as a place of scarcity that's going to keep, you know, you could kind of see it as a a harbinger of like, is that how you say that word? Harbinger? Harbinger? Harbinger. I don't know. I write the word, but I don't know how to say the word. Um, So as like a, 
you know, something that will bring more bad. I'm going to avoid saying the word. <laughs> um, you're, you're also, uh, this is going to be edited. If you want to go no, back and, and start the sentence all over, you're welcome to. It's all good. You know what? I'm not ashamed that I don't know how to pronounce every word I know how to write. Um, okay. So you could see the world as a place that takes things from you and will keep taking from you. Or you could be like, all right, I don't get this one like really big thing for me, a mother, I think for other people, it could be something else, but I yeah. can have everything else. And so I tried to see the world as a place of abundance, dis you know, despite that loss. And it has made me like someone who will never outgrow seeking mentorship. And then of course, you know, there's this side of me that had to figure out like what mental health really is because it was a confusing way to, mm -hmm. It was a confusing time to to be introduced to mental health and I had to learn for myself what that meant. And so I talk in the book about my own post-Olympic depression, which is really finally when I understood her and what that might have felt like. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually I want to come back. Let's let's chat a little bit about sort of the way you, you talk about mental health in, in the book and in your book by uh, in, in a minute, because I think it's actually quite a, a unique and sort of wonderful and useful lens. But first, I want to get into your bio for a moment for folks who, who don't know you. So you're an Olympic athlete, you're a filmmaker. What made you decide you wanted to add writer to that, that resume? You know what? I'm going to be direct and tell you the truth. I feel like sometimes we can dance around like what the truth is with something. And, and this is the truth. I got this advice from one mentor of mine. Well, I think he was just sharing his own experience, but I had the opportunity to learn some things from Bill Hader. And he shared with me that in his own career, you know, there was some portion of it that was him reaching out for things that he thought he wanted and wanted in life. And there was another part of him that was sort of receiving what the world was allowing or believing in him for and kind of taking that and leaning in and running with it. And I think that's like very much the way that I've gone about my life as well. And it, it helped me to hear that from him because it can be very scary to, to want to drive towards your goals, but also be open to what opportunities come your way. And with the book, really, that was like a door that was kind of, that was an energy that came towards me by way of literary agents approaching me and, and then me, you know, yes, anding that interest and, and deciding that I'm someone who, does what I can do when I can do it. And and I think mm -hmm. I'm I'm grateful that I wrote it when I did, because quite honestly, I don't think I could write Bravey today. Like I think I am in the next chapter of, hmm. of life now. And I think it doesn't represent my entire life, but it does represent that first chunk of my life pretty accurately. And I wrote it during a time when that made it made sense for me to write it. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a snapshot of that who you were at that moment. That's interesting. All right, let me ask you one more question and then we'll listen to your book bite. You know, so this is a, a podcast about books, but something, an element of, of sort of the craft that we rarely talk about is book covers. I think there's sort of that, we fall prey to that um, don't judge a book by its cover adage. But I love the cover of your book. It's this sort of arresting image of you. And I wonder if you could describe it for our listeners, because I think it's the, the cover sort of speaks more broadly to this multi-hyphenate uh, element of your of your personality and, and and speaks to the book itself so i love fashion and this book cover is kind of one of my favorite shades of red and then i'm i'm wearing like and what i call like an athletic chic outfit because it's a dress <laughs> but the shoes are these heels that kind of have a play on these athletic 
socks. Mm-hmm. They're like a heel with a with a sock element built in. And I like how stylized we chose the cover to be because, you know, we were grappling, like, should we make it a natural, like in nature, this and that? And I was like, a book, a memoir is anything but natural to me. It was mm. a crafted thoughtful, curated thing where I labored over every word and tried my best to pick the ones that I thought would communicate my experience the best. And so I think the cover hopefully reflects that intention. It is such an arresting image. It's humorous and it's provocative and it's intriguing. It's great. Let's listen to your book bite. Okay. After I competed in the Rio Olympics and had the experience of a lifetime running a personal best, and setting a national record in the 10K, I became depressed. It's not uncommon for Olympians to feel a sort of post-Olympic depression, however mild or severe. It makes sense. You've worked your whole life towards this one singular goal, and suddenly it's over. The feeling is sharp and disorienting. In mild forms, post-Olympic depression is like a ledge. For me, it was a cliff. When I started feeling depressed, I feared the worst. My mom died by suicide when I was four years old, and I've always been afraid that there's an invisible timer in my head that will one day run out and I'll be doomed to end up like her. I thought maybe there was something wrong with me. Then I met Dr. Arpea, a neurologist and psychiatrist who changed my perspective and also changed my life. He explained that my depression was like When you fall and have a scrape on your knee, except instead of the cut being on your knee, it's on your brain. Your brain is a body part that can get injured just like any other, and it can also heal just like any other. Once I realized that, I felt empowered because I felt like I could get better. My shame and self-loathing went away and I could focus on healing. I saw Dr. Arpea three times a week, just like I might see a physical therapist three times a week if I really did hurt my leg. And I stopped beating myself up so much, understanding that just like an injury on my leg, this injury on my brain wasn't going to heal overnight. If we can understand that our brain is a body part and start thinking about mental therapy as just another version of physical therapy, then we can spark a profound change in the way our culture views mental health. We can begin seeing our minds the same way that athletes see their bodies. Tomorrow starts tonight. When I first started training at high altitude in my buildup to the Olympics, I'd often find myself feeling exhausted by the time I showed up to training in the morning. Doing my normal morning routine of picking my clothes, making breakfast, and chatting with my teammates during the van ride to the track left me drained for the actual workout. At first, I just blamed the altitude, But then I read a book called Willpower by Roy Bauermeister and John Tierney, which says that willpower, our ability to make good choices and be effective at what we do, is a measurable and depletable resource. We make thousands of choices every day, and each of those choices uses up some portion of our willpower. Once I started becoming conscious of my own willpower and then protective of it, two things happened. One, I became kinder to myself when my willpower was low, and two, I realized how many little things drained my willpower every day. I started budgeting my willpower. I put in headphones instead of socializing on the way to the track, and I prepared breakfast and laid out my clothes the night before. I couldn't believe how much of a difference this small change made. 
pain is a sensation, not a threat. To qualify for the Olympics, it is important to become a master of pain. But just because I have a high tolerance for pain doesn't mean I enjoy it. When I went to college and started training to compete at the Division I level, intense pain became a part of my daily routine. Every morning, I woke up dreading the inevitable pain to come, and it became clear that if I wanted to survive as a college runner, pain and I had to come to a new understanding. I thought back to middle school, when I got into a fight with this girl I really didn't get along with. When our teacher finally intervened, she quarantined us in a room called The Pod for an hour to figure things out, just us two 11-year-old girls. My adversary and I spent a good 45 minutes in silence, glaring at each other from under our unibrows. But in the end, we agreed that while we didn't want or need to be friends, we could be civil for both of our sakes. I resolved to be similarly civil with pain. Before my races and workouts, I worked on consciously shifting my mental energy from dreading upcoming pain to simply recognizing that the pain would always show up no matter what. And even though I utterly despised it, I should try to greet it politely, like a guest at a dinner party. Once I made that shift, the pain didn't hurt any less, but its edge was gone because I had accepted that it was coming. I've found this approach to be applicable to all different types of pain, challenge, or other unpleasantness that life can bring. We can't erase pain completely, and we certainly don't have to like it, but we can learn to expect and accept it. You make your own cape. I ran my first marathon, the Chicago Marathon, about two years after the Rio Olympics. Those two years had been an arduous trek through depression and one injury after another. Still, my goal was to run somewhere around 2.30, faster than the current Olympic standard qualifying time. But about 10 miles in, I began to feel a weakness in my previously injured hamstring. By now, I was running several seconds per mile off pace, and I knew that running 2.30 would be impossible. So I decided that my new goal would be just to finish the race, no matter what. Crossing that finish line was such a tremendous challenge that I felt like I won a gold medal. After the race came the media gauntlet. I could tell that reporters were expecting me to feel upset at my result. But I reminded myself that I had not failed. I had reframed my original goal in light of a new reality. So instead of being disappointed when the reporters asked me about my time, I had a huge smile on my face. I made a conscious decision to focus on how proud I was of finishing rather than how disappointed I was at running a slower time. Reframing our goals and rewriting our stories are powerful tools, and how you talk about your experience will dictate how you feel about them. The world is not objective. It's actually up to us. So why not be the hero of your own story? Being a hero is a choice you can make not a cape someone else will drape over you. You make your own cape. Be a bravey, replace can't with maybe. Being brave enough to chase goals that seem scary, goals we might not get, is a switch we can flip in our minds. Growing up, I chased specific labels, strong, fierce, fast, funny, pretty. But all of those labels were outward facing. They described an energy you projected into the world. Being brave or being a bravey is different. It's inward-facing, a choice you make about the relationship with yourself. We all have dreams that we're chasing, however big or small. 
and we can all decide to be brave enough to give ourselves a chance. Anyone can be a bravey, and the permutations of what that means are infinite. That's what being a bravey is. You're making a conscious choice to tell yourself what you'd like to be until it becomes part of you. You choose to replace can't with maybe by acknowledging your feelings but focusing on your actions. Your actions encompass everything from what you do with your time to who you surround yourself with and the words you feed your mind. To know you can do this for yourself is the most powerful thing in the world. So one of the things I really love in that is you describe realizing with with the help of, of your therapist that mental health is not unlike a, a physical injury, right? That that tearing your hamstring is not unlike experiencing depression. That they're they're um, I love that analogy. You know, even since you wrote the book, you sort of alluded to earlier that some of your thinking has changed. Some of this conversation, I think, has evolved since you wrote the book. And I think, you know, other athletes, I'm thinking of Simone Biles, uh, Michael Phelps, Naomi Osaka, have come out and, and spoken really candidly about their struggles with mental health. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about where you sort of think the conversation of mental health and sports, where it is now and where it needs to go. Okay, so where it is now, it feels like it's progressed quite a bit because in 2016, when I competed in the Olympics, the post-Olympic depression and mental health elements that are very natural with chasing any big dream, you know, athletic or otherwise, was a pretty like, it was just a well-known secret, but no one um, was really, you know, I, I was not very privy to it. And I think that's why I was so unprepared for mm-hmm. what it was. And now I think it's in conversation. And I think yeah. where where it hopefully is going to go is that I think we're still having a, a struggle with actually physical and mental health injuries, which I think are the same, um, with accepting the word pain, like at face value. F- for these athletes who have spoken up and, and have had you know, great support from some people, but lack of support from others. I think the lack of support comes from the desire to have some kind of tangible proof, like an MRI to show that that injury is real. And that's very dangerous because there is no MRI for a mental health injury that I know of. And, and you know what, for physical health injuries, sometimes they don't show up on MRIs either. And I know so many mostly female athletes who have been convinced and, and, and lived with injuries, mental health and physical health that are real injuries. And they have expressed pain as a, as a symptom. And they've been told that it's not pain. It's in your head. It's not pain. It's weakness. It's not pain. You need to be tougher. It's not pain. It's a million other things. And this has happened to me with my physical health. And it actually, it struck me that really where I hope the conversation goes is that the word pain has meaning simply because we said it. I think we're headed in like a better direction with it. And we just have to keep being supportive of one another. So I'm going to be at the New York City Marathon on Sunday. And I I had like this big um, surgery that I found out that I needed to get, you know, last winter, that was a result of me ignoring, uh, honestly being advised that the pain that I was feeling was not real and for years. 
And um, it caused me to injure myself so badly that I needed a reconstruction surgery. Mm. And I'm healthy. Like I'm now finally healthy and in no pain, but I'm going to that race and I'm only ready to run. I'm not ready to race the New York City Marathon. And so I'm going to go out there and run. And that is a really, um, it's a challenge, honestly, for an elite athlete to go to a race and say like, you, you know, you are not here to compete. You're here to run and celebrate your health. And I feel nervous because like, I feel really proud of where I am and that I took care of myself, but it's obviously nerve wracking to feel like putting yourself out there when you're not, you're not going to go run your hardest. You're going to run and be smart and, and just celebrate the, the health. So yeah. <laughs> well, we will be cheering you on. And I'm so grateful that you took a little time out of your last week or so of marathon prep to chat with us. Thank you. Your support means so much. Seriously. That was Alexi Pappas with five big ideas from her book, Bravey, which will be out soon in paperback. Coming up after the break, journalist John Bacon shares the unexpected lessons he learned while coaching the worst hockey team in the country. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. District 5 Pee Wee Hockey Team. I'm Gordon Bombay. I'm the new coach. Afraid so, dude. Got the roster right here. This is a clip from the 1992 Disney film, The Mighty Ducks. Emilio Estevez plays Gordon Bombay, a hotshot lawyer who gets busted for drunk driving and is sentenced to some pretty unusual community service, coaching a kid's hockey team. Now here's the long and the short of it. I hate hockey and I don't like kids. It was supposed to be a pep talk. Look, I'm sure this will be a real bonding experience. Maybe one day, one of you will even write a book about it in jail. Funny. Is there a goalie? Uh, only for a little while. I'm uh, moving back to Philly. Thank you for sharing that. No problem. All right, get out on the ice. Let me see what you can do. Uh, just so you know, you really suck. Hey, I'll decide who sucks around here. I recently came across a real-life Gordon Bombay. He's a sports reporter, not a lawyer. His decision to coach hockey was a choice, not a punishment. But one similarity is undeniable. They really suck. With no experience and low expectations, John took a job coaching the Ann Arbor-Huron High School River Rats, the worst high school hockey team in the country. But under John's leadership, something strange happened. The River Rats got good. The story of how John managed to turn the team around is the subject of his inspiring new book, Let Them Lead. Whether you're a river rat or running the rat race, the techniques John outlines in his book will inspire you to work harder, collaborate more effectively, and achieve success you never thought was possible. Here's John. I'm John U. Bacon, here to share five big ideas from my book, Let Them Lead, 
Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. The goal of my book is simple, to help leaders inspire their people to lead themselves. Now, why is that important? Because the endless complaints about employees today makes me think there must be a national epidemic. They're lazy, they're selfish, they're entitled. I hear it every day, and you probably do too. So companies are taking two approaches. The first is the old school, command and control, my way or the highway dictatorship. The other approach is the opposite. Casual Fridays and Taco Tuesdays, beanbag chairs and kombucha machines. The problem is neither one works. So what does work? There's a third way, which I call letting them lead. Let me tell you a story, a true story. In 2000, the ice hockey team at my alma mater in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the Huron High School River Rats, and I'm not making that up, finished with a 0-22-3 record. For you non-sports fans out there, the 0 is where the wins go, 22 is the losses, and 3 represents the ties. Even better, the guy they picked to lead them, yours truly, had never been a head hockey coach before, and I also happened to hold the record for the most games in a Huron uniform, 86, with the fewest goals, 0. Not bragging, just saying. So we've got a team with zero wins, led by a coach who scored zero goals. Perfect, yes, this is the combination we're looking for. But it did work, because I ignored conventional wisdom every chance I had, and our people proved their critics wrong on a daily basis. So how do you do it? Here's my first big idea. Make sure you're the dumbest guy in the room. The first thing you need to do is to get help. Simple enough but not many leaders actually do it. Why not? Because they think leaders have to be invincible know-it-alls. Well, those leaders don't make it. Trust me, nobody can lead by themselves. The more help you get, the better off you and your team will be. As Warren Buffett said, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Contrary to the CEO as Superman myth, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. It might even be a disadvantage, not that I would know, but you do need to figure out who is, get them on your team, and let them lead. On our staff, we had guys who had played college hockey, pro hockey, even hockey in Sweden. At our first team meeting, I told the parents, my goal was to be the dumbest guy in the coach's room, and I have greatly exceeded my expectations. I didn't do it by interviews and resumes. I did it by trying them out, and you can do it too. That way you hire slower, and if you have to, you can fire faster. I also hired people who were loyal but strong enough to disagree. As gum magnate William Wrigley Jr. said, if two leaders always agree, one of them is unnecessary. Well, suffice it to say, in our staff, all of us were necessary. Too often, leaders confuse loyalty with blind obedience, and they value it so highly because they don't want to be challenged. Well, sign that pact and you may get peace, but you will never get real success. Remember, don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. In fact, make it your goal. Big idea number two. You need to make it special to join your team, and the easiest way to make it special is to make it hard. When I got the job, the first thing I did was to call my mentor, Culver Academy's Al Clark, who retired in 2015 with the most wins of any high school coach in the country. When I asked him what I should do, he said, you need to make it special to play for Huron. And the best way to make it special is to make it hard. That was the exact opposite of what everybody else had been telling me. But Clark had a point. 
Peace Corps takes about one in six applicants, and the Navy SEALs a mere 6%. Those jobs don't pay much either, but the people who apply are attracted to the difficulty of those jobs. That's the point. So you need to make the people on your team feel like they had to do something hard just to make the team, something that not everybody would be willing to do. That way they know just by making the team, they've accomplished something special. And once that culture is established, it's pretty easy to maintain because your people with a little guidance will do it for you. So that's what we did. At our very first summer workout, I told our players, we are going to be the hardest working high school hockey team in the state. Our goal is nothing less than winning the state title. It won't be this year, but the team that does it will invite you back to their banquet and give you a standing ovation. Now, they thought I was crazy, but they kept coming. That's how starved they were for a sense of purpose. So, one week after school got out, we were in the weight room and the track three days a week, every week, for four straight months before our season even started. And get this, not one player quit. In fact, people from other sports started coming down just to see if they could survive our grueling workouts, and our guys smoked them. The highlight for me came on the hottest day of the year in late August. We had had a torrential rain that morning, followed by 90 degree heat. Steam started rising from the black rubber track. When you looked down the field at the football goalposts, the air wiggled so much you couldn't make them out. I told our players, this is the hottest hour of the hottest day of the year. Another team would whine about this and give up, but not you. You're going to break every record we've set on this track. They were pumped up, except for one freshman who grumbled. Our captain, Mike Henry, turned to him and said, Hey, you play for Huron, and it's harder over here. Oh man, that was exactly what I'd been waiting to hear. I liked it so much, we put Mike's phrase on a sign in our locker room. And that's what it looks like when your people begin to lead themselves. And that's also when things start getting fun. Number three. Be impatient with behavior, but patient with results. Now look, we were still the worst team in America, so we could not control the results of our games. But we could control our behaviors that went into those games. To those ends, we had only two rules. Work hard and support your teammates. That's it. We won our first three games, the most we had won the previous two years combined. But then we had to play Trenton with 14 state titles. Well, they crushed us, 13-2. to And let me remind you, this is hockey, not football. Those scores came in increments of one. By the time they got to 13, we all knew Trenton's fight song. When we got to the locker room, our guys were throwing their sticks and their gloves around. They were angry and hurt and embarrassed. So as soon as I walked in, I said, hey, I saw the game, 13-2. to Can't spin it. But that doesn't matter. What does matter are the two rules of Huron Hockey. What are they? They yelled back, work hard and support your teammates. That's right, I said. Did you do those two things tonight? They thought about it, then they realized they actually had worked hard and supported their teammates. That's right, I said. You did both. That is hard when you're getting crushed 13 to 2. This was heroic. We keep that up and we're going to turn this thing around, I promise you. And let me tell you something else. We're going to play Trenton again, and it sure as heck ain't going to be 13-2. to They walked out with their heads held high. Following our two principles allowed us to define ourselves, instead of letting the world do it for us. 
We finished that first season with seven wins, the most improved team in school history. But that's not the point. The point is, by emphasizing our internal behavior and not the external results, we could focus on what we sent out into the world and not worry about what came back. Big idea number four, water all your plants and then watch who grows. Leaders too often think their people are robots. They can do what they can do. They can't do what they can't do. None of this will ever change. And there's nothing that anybody can do about any of it. But the truth is the exact opposite of all that. People can grow dramatically. And that includes leaders, a lesson I learned in real time. Talent is not fixed, nor is maturity, grit, or leadership ability. So don't try to predict who's going to succeed and who isn't. Treat them all fairly, including the quiet ones. Water all your plants. Some will shoot right up, and others will be dormant for years before sprouting. But they can all help your team. And that brings us to Nate Reichwich, our third-string goalie, far behind our top two goalies. Our second year, we had a good team, but our top two goalies were struggling. Even worse, we were about to play Gross Point South, the seventh-ranked team in the state. In our last three meetings, they had beaten us 5-0, 7-2, and 7-0. We had not beaten them in 20 years of trying. As Nate recalls, he was clearly the least skilled goaltender on the team, but he worked so hard, I was willing to give him a chance. I still expected to get blown out that night, but Nate, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, starts making save after save after save looking like he'd been doing it his entire life. I have no idea what happened that night, but we believed that Nate was for real. He became our starting goalie on a top 10 team. He earned the team's most improved player award and the nickname Darth Nader. At the end of our second year, we played Trenton again, the same team that had crushed us 13-2 our first year. But this time, it was a battle. Nate played great, and it came right down to the wire. We still lost 3-2 but their fans gave our players a standing ovation, one they richly deserved. We finished our second season with 16 wins, second best in school history. But we never would have gotten there without Nate Reichwich. Your people will do amazing things too if you just water all your plants and watch who grows. Big idea number five, create layers of leadership. This is crucial. You simply cannot be the only leader on your team. John Cooper, the coach of the two-time Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning, said that on bad teams, nobody leads. On good teams, leaders lead. But on great teams, everybody leads. And that's our goal here. How do you do it? Leading by example is clearly important. If you don't, you're a hypocrite and they won't follow you. But it's not nearly enough to lead by example. In fact, we had a name for those who led by example. We called them sophomores. Because all leading by example really means is that you know your job and you can do your job. Well, heck, every sophomore should know that. And by your junior year, I want you to know your job, do your job, and know everybody else's job too. And by your senior year, we expect you to know your job, do your job, know everyone else's job, and help them do their jobs better. And that's why we created layers of leadership. The point is, everybody on your team can lead, whether they have that title or not. Our ultimate objective was to get the players to run the team, and they did. They picked our team goals, not me, and for that reason, they were more inspired to achieve them. They even had a say on disciplinary issues, which made all of them accountable to each other, not just me. And by our third season, we even let them coach an entire game by themselves. Let me explain. 
We had a 14-game unbeaten streak going that third year, a school record, but then we suffered two tough losses. So I called up our captain and told him the seniors are going to coach the next game by themselves, start to finish, from picking the starting lineup to delivering the pregame speech to talking to the Ann Arbor News after the game. Have no fear. The seniors coached a great game, beating a very good team 6 to nothing. We finished our third season 17-4-5, the best record in school history, with the same players who had not won a game three years earlier. We were ranked 53rd in the country, thereby passing 95% of the nation's teams. But at our senior banquet, the players did not talk about their victories. They talked about the values that we had stood for from the start. It was never about the hockey. So this is why I don't believe people today are lazy or sloppy or selfish. They want discipline. They want direction. They want to be challenged. They want a sense of mission, purpose, and belonging. And they want to lead. So let them. If you give them these things, they will give you everything. I'm John U. Bacon, and these are my five big ideas from Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. I hope you enjoy the book, and thanks for listening. Go River Rats! That was John U. Bacon with five big ideas from Let Them Lead. After the break, Tom Vanderbilt explains why you're never too old to learn something new. Hi, I'm Tom Corn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. A couple years ago, as he stood on the sidelines watching his young daughter try out new sports and activities, Tom Vanderbilt had a thought. How come I'm not out there? Why is it that we push our kids to try new things yet we're afraid to try anything new ourselves. Tom decided to rectify that. In the months that followed, he learned how to surf and snowboard, how to juggle, sing, and play chess. His goal wasn't to gain mastery, he just wanted to have fun. His experience as a midlife novice is the subject of his charming new book, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Tom, who's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, is an inspiring spokesman for amateurs everywhere. His work reminds us that being a beginner, no matter how old you are or untalented you feel, is a great way to stimulate your brain, meet new people, and bring a little adventure into your life. Here he is with five big ideas from the book. Hi, it's Tom Vanderbilt, author of Beginners. Here are five key insights from the book. Insight number one, the power of beginner's mind. I wrote Beginners essentially to get over my fear of being bad at things. When you're a late 40-something parent who's never been on a snowboard in his life, and your young daughter suddenly wants to go snowboarding, 
It's far easier to simply sign her up for lessons and wait on the sidelines, proudly taking pictures and posting them to social media, than to actually get out there and snowboard yourself, testing your aging body and your insufficient health insurance. But I want to argue that there's great power in being a beginner. You suddenly see the world with fresh eyes, what the Buddhist monk Shunru Suzuki famously calls beginner's mind. The habits of the expert, as he called them, can be an obstacle. Your own experience gets in the way of finding fresh solutions. In one study that looked at the famous candle problem, in which people are asked to attach a candle to a wall using nothing more than a match and a box of tacks, five-year-olds actually did better than adults. Why? Because adults, the author suggested, think of the box as a container for tacks, not a theoretical shelf for the candle. Being new at something can force you to look at the world in a new way, to look at yourself in a new way. We often think that learning new things as an adult must be related to one's work, or because you lack fulfillment in work. But as Winston Churchill, himself a keen amateur painter, once observed, those whose work is their pleasure are those who most need the means of banishing it at intervals from their minds. And even learning new skills that might seem irrelevant to one's career may actually profoundly help that career. Research shows that Nobel Prize-winning scientists were 22 times more likely to have engaged in amateur pursuits, particularly in the performing arts, than the average scientist. I doubt any of them woke up one day and thought, hmm, what my neurobiology career really needs is for me to learn the tango. But perhaps, in taking on those new pursuits as a beginner, they could think again, like children, freed from preconceptions, unburdened by expectation, less categorical in their outlook. They could push beyond their domains, beyond themselves, and they could have fun, something that's never to be underestimated as an agent of learning and discovery. Insight number two, what we can learn from the true beginners. As we try to learn new things, we should keep in mind the experience of infants learning to walk. And of course, that was once all of us. For beginners, I spent some time at NYU's Infant Action Lab, watching babies learn to move. Infants spend roughly a third of their day for six solid months practicing walking, and they don't truly perfect it until years later. Along the way, they'll have fallen a lot. Infants fall an average of 17 times an hour. Novice walkers who struggle to regain balance with nearly every step can take up to 30 tumbles an hour. Most of us, if we had this kind of failure rate in something, would simply give up. What's strange is that when the infants switch from something like crawling to walking, they don't seem to remember those risky moments from crawling. They'll suddenly try things that they had previously learned were dangerous. Isn't that bad? Actually, no. I was told by the lab's director, Karen Adolf, that you don't want infants to learn fixed associations. Babies are growing at astonishing speeds. The things that worked for the crawling infant might not work for the walking infant, while the insurmountable hurdles they faced as crawlers might suddenly disappear as they become capable walkers. Most importantly, Adolf says, you don't want the baby to learn to stop trying. That persistence, that willingness to fail, and that adaptability are just a few of the many things that adult beginners can learn from infants. Another key lesson is the importance of changing up your practice. Infants never take the same walk twice. They don't do drills, they explore. You don't want to teach an infant one proper way to walk to be repeated in lockstep. When it comes to learning, variability is key. The neurophysiologist Nikolai Bernstein called it repetition without repetition. What might look like clumsiness or randomness on the part of infants can simply be beginners exploring a range of possible solutions, which seems to help promote faster learning. Infants also remind us that progress is not often linear. Learning happens in fits and starts. Stages are only rough benchmarks. Development does not always march uniformly in one direction. 
Infants may learn to walk, then briefly revert to crawling. Progress is often U-shaped, meaning kids and adults often get worse before they get better. Infants seem to learn best when operating near the limits of their current skill level, what's called the zone of proximal development. In other words, we should always be on the edge of the possible. Lastly, skills open new worlds. Infants who learn to walk can suddenly go more places and do more things. Infants are faster in the first week of horrible walking, Karen Adolf told me, than they are in their 21 weeks of crawling. None of this will be easy. If it feels easy, you're not learning. Infants experience fall after fall until slowly their brain and body figure out how to stop falling in all sorts of situations. Infants live what might be called the beginner's creed. If you don't learn to fail, you'll fail to learn. Insight number three. If you know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. A mathematician named Richard Hamming once drew an interesting distinction between scientists and engineers. In science, he wrote, if you know what you are doing, you should not be doing it. Meaning, science was about probing beyond the edge of what we know. It was about experimentation and failure. There was no need to dabble in already proven hypotheses. In engineering, however, wrote Hamming, if you do not know what you are doing, you should not be doing it. Engineers are tasked with making sure things do not fail, with ensuring certain quantifiable levels of performance. No one wants to drive across an experimental bridge. In our careers, we're largely engineers. We need to deliver reliable competence. When the New York Times asks me to write something, I don't send them an article written in iambic pentameter or haiku or free verse or any other literary flights of fancy I may have, as much as I'm sometimes tempted. But we all, I think, also want to be scientists. We want to mess around, screw things up, push the boundaries just to see what might happen. We want to get in over our heads without worrying too much about the consequences. We want to see what other dimensions there might be to this self that presents every morning in the bathroom mirror. Those hidden cells become, arguably, even more important as you age and settle into a being that's ever more defined by the outside world and by you. As the writer John Casey wrote, My old teacher Kurt Vonnegut told me that to flatter a person, it's more effective to praise their minor secret vanities than their major accomplishments. We don't always want to be known for that thing we're known for. Insight number four, your brain is holding you back. One of the biggest obstacles to learning new skills is not your body, but your brain. When we get really good at something, we stop thinking about it. It becomes automatic. When we perform a well-practiced task like walking, our brain is constantly running a series of predictions about what will happen. These predictions are incredibly robust. Think about when you step on a broken escalator. You feel for a moment that it's moving because of all the times it actually has been moving. Often the biggest barrier to skill learning is overthinking. When stroke victims have to learn to walk again, their gait is often awkward because they're actually thinking about putting one foot in front of another. Under the theory of reinvestment, as Rich Masters calls it, when you try to exert conscious control of your body, you limit the so-called degrees of freedom. You freeze up. As Masters describes it, the trick is getting people to learn to move without knowing they're learning. Good skill learning also requires what movement scientist Gabrielle Wolf calls an external focus. Athletes do better when they focus not on what their own bodies are doing, but some external target. As Mohamed Abdul Rauf, one of the NBA's most accurate free throw shooters, describes it, I just relax and shoot, and when I shoot, I look toward the back of the rim. Your brain can get in the way of your body in all kinds of ways. When I was trying to learn to sing, I would struggle to hit higher notes, which seems natural. I'm a baritone. But these were notes I could actually achieve in conversational speech. What was happening was that I was thinking about the high notes, and I was literally trying to stretch my body upwards as I sang. 
which only strained the very mechanism needed to produce those notes. My teacher had a nice little trick. When I was about to hit a high note, briefly bend my knees and dip down. I could suddenly hit the notes. Insight number five, you're never too old, it's never too late. When my daughter plays competitive chess, I often notice that she gets particularly nervous about playing higher or even equally rated boys as opposed to girls. This is a very real thing in chess. Psychologists call it stereotype threat. The internalization of some external stereotype actually makes you perform worse. Boys are said to be better at chess than girls, so girls often underperform when playing against boys, playing worse than their rating would suggest. Adults, I think, face a similar stereotype threat when it comes to being a beginner. It's that little voice within saying, it's too late, you're too old. Only children can learn chess or the piano. It is true that it gets harder, sometimes marginally, sometimes significantly, to learn new skills as one gets older, particularly when you're an absolute novice in a field. As work by psychologist Neil Sharnas shows, when subjects of various age and experience were asked to learn a novel word processing program, when a subject had experience, age didn't so much matter. But when they were novices, age suddenly came into play. The older the novice, the older it took to learn. So that's the bad news. If you're older, you're going to have to work harder than a younger person to pick up some new skill. The good news is that the brain is still ready, willing, and able to learn at any age. Take, for instance, juggling. A week's worth of trying to learn to juggle, three balls, already has a big effect on brain plasticity. That's the shorthand way to describe the brain reshaping itself, rewiring its connections. A study that looked at a group of older subjects with a mean age of 60 years who were learning to juggle found that their brains exhibited a similar level of plasticity as the subjects in an earlier study where the mean age was 20. This doesn't mean those older people are going to actually learn as easily as younger subjects. But here's the important thing to remember. The more learning that older adults take on, the faster they seem to learn, the more they become like younger adults. And that's it. That was Tom Vanderbilt with five big ideas from his book, Beginners. I had the chance to interview Tom on this show earlier this year. Here's a snippet of our conversation. Darn it. Have I disappeared again? I don't hear you all. Oh, <laughs> okay, great, great. I think we're rolling. Tom Vanderbilt, it's great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Hey, great to be here, thank you. You know, Tom, as, as we just witnessed, I think... Perhaps the most profound experience I've had at being a beginner it has been podcasting in the last year, and particularly during COVID with the audio hookups. It's, it's uh, that, that sort of beautiful awkwardness that you refer to that we're supposed to aspire to, I feel like I've discovered in this process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, the pandemic has turned us all into beginners of, of various sorts, and it's opened the window to people, like exactly what I'm talking about in this book, taking up new things in ways that we haven't seen before in, in sheer numbers, so. Absolutely. Well, so you have a new book out, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning, which you're quick to say is not a guide to how to learn new things, but I would say that it's a provocation. It's a work of advocacy. The last line of the book is, now that we have ended, it's time for you to begin. So this is really a call to action, right? I mean, it seems like you have a relatively strong view that people should continue learning new things throughout their lives. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, learning how to learn better. I just felt that there were sort of already a number of resources out there. And, and for me, that 
this was the thing that had been holding me back was getting to that beginner stage. And then the idea of being in that beginner stage seemed to me so unpleasant and something I didn't want to introduce into my life, which, you know, as a 40 something professional, I'm supposed to exude this, this air of, of competence. And, you know, I've got everything under control and I have this number of skill sets. I have mastery in this and mastery in that. So the question is, you know, why would I want to actively go out and seek something I, I would have a good chance of, of being pretty bad at for a while in public? You know, what also happens is that, you know, of course, we're so immersed in, in work and maybe, maybe being a parent or other roles that we just put this stuff off. And then maybe someday down the road, retirement comes and suddenly you're scrambling to pick up a number of things that you've always wanted to get to. But I, you know, I thought, you know, what if I just jumpstarted that process a, a, a little bit and just tackled some of these things head on that I'd wanted to do my whole life? So that, that was sort of the premise of the book. And you took on with vigilance a number of very specific new skills. What, what were those? Before I get into those, I, I went through a process that I sometimes do, uh, you know, of, of sort of crowdsourcing. And I went to uh, Ask Metafilter, a site that I like a lot. And I said, you know, hey, what, what new trick should this old dog learn? I got for a lot of very interesting replies, you know, a lot of which were things like coding or calligraphy or origami or, you know, things, things like that. And there was some very interesting ideas there. But I set up a set of criteria and one thing was they didn't need to be things that would benefit me in my job. This was not necessarily professional development. You know, these weren't sort of like, you know, skills with a capital S that you would do in corporate retraining. So anyway, the skills were uh, singing, surfing, drawing, juggling, and essentially making, which ended up being a wedding ring because I lost two rings while trying to learn to surf. One in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific, which is very thorough of you. (laughs) Yeah, I I seek balance in my life in in all ways. And so. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, it couldn't come out at a better time, certainly for me personally, because I'm in a mode of opening myself up to learning new things. But I think it's also a historical moment where there's greater and greater recognition that learning new things throughout your life benefits your career. It potentially benefits your health. It can have great social benefits. I was fascinated by this observation in the book that the word dilettante, which we all associate with being something negative, right? It's an undisciplined, unfocused dabbler. The origin of the word dilettante was quite different. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it comes from dilettare, which uh, means to delight in Italian. And it sort of stemmed from this 19th century group of of English, uh, largely men, who were sort of connoisseurs. They were fascinated by this ideal of continental art and culture and, and the, the life that was being lived in places like Italy. So they would go on these you know, sort of grand tours and try to amass this knowledge. Of course, this was before, the days before a lot of the stuff was that easily available. So you sort of had to go there and, and actually do the stuff and, and live this, and sort of bring it back to England and, and then just essentially be delighted by it. This was, you know, sort of ahead of the age when there were things like professional art historians or everything had sort of been professionalized. You needed a university degree to take this sort of thing on. But as various things happened, society began to become more sort of bureaucratized and professionalized. That notion of dilettante became a little bit uh, almost a pejorative term. And it certainly is that way now. I mean, you, you see certain people, you know, like Duke Ellington said he aspires to be a dilettante. So sometimes you see someone kind of going against the current and and claiming that mantle. But generally, it's someone, yeah, who has a short attention span, can't stick to one thing, 
is just a hopeless dabbler, sort of bad at a number of things, a jack of all trades. Well, with your help, I think we're going to rehabilitate the word <laughs> dilettante and dilettantism. You say in the book that there was actually a society of dilettante, an 18th century British club. Maybe we can bring that back in New York in 2021. If you want to hear the rest of my conversation with Tom, check out the beginners episode of this show. And if you want to help form a society of dilettanti, Tom and I are waiting. I hope you enjoyed those three book bites. You can find those and many more, a new book bite every single day on our Next Big Idea app. If you want to go deeper, you can buy any of those books with a couple clicks directly from our app. You'll also find video and audio e-courses on the best books of the year, ad-free versions of this podcast, and conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show, please tell your teammates, rivals, training buddies, and that guy who always beat you to the Stairmaster at the gym. And if you have a chance, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. The ratings really help us. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Special thanks to Alexi, John, and Tom. Really, folks, their books are incredible. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.